If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out of blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code twelve twelve and get forty dollars off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code twelve twelve. Sleepcoolnow.com, twelve twelve. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this January fourteenth, two thousand eighteen. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of the show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. And as I already uh, stated in hour number one, this is the uh, final regularly scheduled edition of the World According to Zig podcast. It's also the final edition that we will be doing from the radio studio, which we have rented out for the last couple of years. Uh, the uh, last year or so of the syndicated Sunday night radio show, as well as the first year plus of the podcast, so that is 100% changing. My guess and hope is that about twice a month we'll still be doing podcasts. Although I don't know about the logistical setup and how that all is going to work, there may be some advantages. Is that I'll have more. Flexibility as to when I can do a podcast, so that'll be good. But until we actually start doing new podcasts from the new location, I'm, I'm I don't like to make promises I can't keep. So I I presume we're going to be doing more podcasts. I cannot 100% guarantee that. And so because of all that, I thought in hour number two, where we normally do a guest. We've had some really good guests in the year plus history of the podcast. I would do an Ask John Anything episode, which we've not done in the history of the podcast. And you know, the first question, obviously, which I, I did get when I、uh, solicited questions via Twitter and Facebook and email, was okay. Well, what's going on with the podcast? Why? Why the change? And you know, like anything else in the world, my daughter on the last. Edition of the syndicated radio show at the very end of 2016 said it best. It's costing money. Okay, so that the reality is that we pay a rent for this radio studio near where I live in Southern California, and that's why, from a podcast standpoint, this podcast sounds pretty darn good、uh, quality-wise in comparison to a lot of other podcasts because it's it's done exactly like we used to do the old radio show. Only it's better in a lot of ways because we don't have to worry about putting out a signal and having that all get screwed up to you know, a bunch of stations across the country, and we don't have to worry about a connection to a co-host in Birmingham, Alabama, that got all screwed up、uh, and, and caused a nightmare there. So,、um, but the, for some reason, and I don't have an answer as to why, it doesn't make any sense to me. They decided to increase the rent rather significantly this year. 
uh, the company that that uh, I was working with actually to broadcast nationally the syndicated radio show, uh, which also happens to be a very, very, very pro-Trump company. I don't know if that's a coincidence or if that's uh, connected, but for some reason they decided that the rent would be increased this year. And frankly, I thought our rent was already too high. So from a money perspective, it was just not doable to go on a weekly basis for a podcast, which I'm very proud of content-wise, but does not get nearly enough listens to justify any sort of uh, financial outlay that was close to what they were going to ask for. I mean, I I do this for free. (laughs) One of the great ironies of this podcast is, I happen to think that these podcasts are better, many of them, than anything I've ever done in my broadcast career. Yet, I don't get paid, nor have I ever wanted to get paid for this. And they're far better than a lot of shows I did when I was getting paid a lot of money, for instance, at KFI in Los Angeles. Which tells you a lot about the broadcast industry, right? (laughs) That oftentimes what you're doing for free is of a higher quality than what you're doing to get paid, uh, you know, there's a lot of analogies you could use, but I, I now view commercial talk radio as basically being run by prostitutes. Uh, I don't like having sex for money, and I like choosing who I have sex with. <laughs> you don't get to do that when you're doing commercial talk radio. You, when, you're, when you're having sex for money, you don't get to choose who you're having sex with, meaning you don't get to really choose your opinions or your subject matter because you have to feed the monster. You have to consistently whore out, especially now that the the business model is broken, which is a large part of how we got Donald Trump. A lot of people jumped on the Trump bandwagon because they had no other choice with a broken business model. They needed to inject that broken business model with steroids, and Trump was the steroids. I just can't do that. I, I just can't work in that situation. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's a sad part of that. There's also, I, I made a lot of mistakes in this whole situation. We began this quest to, to create some sort of a broadcast outlet back in October of 2014. So I've been doing this now for a little bit over three years. First is a tiny little local radio show on Sunday nights, then nationally syndicated. I think we got up to 20-some stations and, um, and you know, we're top 100 in the Talkers Magazine list. And so, and we actually did, ratings-wise, we did pretty darn well in a couple of markets that actually had ratings. So there was, there were some positives about that, but there were several things that I did not understand and where I was misled. And I made some tragic mistakes because a, a great guy by the name of Kevin Elder put up the money along with a a good friend of mine from high school named Dave Petruco, his support was crucial to this. They decided to effectively fund this effort. And had I known then what I know now, I would have done everything totally differently. It wasn't that I necessarily did things stupidly based upon what I thought was the truth, but I would, I had a very skewed view of what was possible and where things were heading. Number one, Even I didn't realize that the business model for talk radio was quite as broken as it really is. That was the first mistake. I had been out of it for a while, and I had a sense of it, but even in October 2014, it was even worse than I thought. That was number one. Uh, Number two, uh, 
I was misled with regard to the nature of the stations that we were on. Uh, that was a big problem. And I, I using the word misled uh, as mildly as I possibly can, I think it was way worse than that. I think, I think we were scammed. I think I was scammed. Uh, I didn't have much choice. I didn't have uh, any leverage in the negotiations, which is classic for my entire life and career. In fact, I've ever read a biography, autobiography. It might be titled Life Without Leverage. Uh, but we had no leverage in the negotiations, and we got screwed. That was another element of this whole thing. Then, of course, there was the Trump factor. I mean, I never anticipated that Donald Trump was going to be the president of the United States and I was late in realizing, although earlier than a lot of other people were, that Trump would be the Republican nominee. But even as I realized he was going to be the Republican nominee, and frankly, you know, people don't realize this, I, w I was one of really the first people who started to seriously predict that it was going to happen. Even before 2016, I wrote a column in November of 2015 chastising Nate Silver, the liberal prediction guru, for not realizing that Trump had a very good chance of winning the Republican nomination. But even if I, even after I realized that, I didn't, I never jumped on board. So we got no benefit at all. In fact, it was a negative effect, I'm sure, uh, from a rating standpoint, an audience perspective on the Trump factor. And once the general election happened, I still never got on board, <laughs> which made it even worse. And not only that, but it destroyed the relationship between me and my co-host and longtime friend, Leah Brandon, which was tragic. So, uh, if I had to do it all over again, I also, by the way, the fourth thing is I had no idea in October 2014, actually before, you know, it was probably more like July, August that we were making these decisions. I had no idea in mid to late 2014 that podcasting was going to be taken seriously. I really had no idea that, that it would be even potentially a situation you could make it work monetarily, business-wise. Had I known that... I would have for, just forgotten about doing a radio show. I just would have done the damn podcast. And I would have thrown all the resources that we had at the time, now which are depleted, uh, into that. So that was, that was probably the biggest, most horrendous mistake that I made, uh, you know, early on in this whole deal. If I had, you know, if I was able to do it over again, I would have just thrown everything into a podcast and this podcast probably would be in, I don't know if we would be making money, but we'd probably be viable. We'd certainly, we would certainly be far better shaped than we're in right now. Now, in order to maintain the podcast in any reasonable form, uh, I do have enough resources to be able to do this at least to the end of the year if we do it on a more sporadic standpoint. At that point, who knows, we can reevaluate. But that's the plan, is to, to do this more sporadically, not on a regular once-a-week basis, perhaps more uh, instigated by news events and maybe not always on weekends, but probably, you know, twice, maybe at most three times a month. Uh, so it's not as if the podcast is likely to go away, but that's the story of why it is that I really have no choice at this point. And frankly, most people would have given up on this podcast a long time ago. Uh, you know, not only do I not get paid, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of strain. Getting guests, which we've gotten a lot of really good guests, is incredibly difficult, getting more difficult, uh, you know, especially since you kind of go through your Rolodex of people who are interesting. And, yeah, you can ask them on again, but uh, at a certain point, you know, especially doing it on a, from a standpoint of what's in the news that week, and I have, I'm doing this myself. I mean, there's no staff involved. It's exceedingly difficult. 
And, you know, even people who, most depressingly, people who have agreed to be on the podcast won't even go on the podcast. Like, for instance, Jake Tapper from CNN agreed to go on the podcast. CNN said, no, you're not going on the podcast. Uh, Ben Shapiro uh, agreed to be on the podcast, but then put on so many damn conditions that were so bizarre and effectively gave him editorial control over what he was going to say. I was like, screw it. It's not worth it. Cause I, I, my threshold for bullshit is very low. That's the, that's the main problem here is my threshold for bullshit is very low. So, uh, and therefore my desire to keep doing this is I'm like, why am I bothering? Yes. There are people who really like it. And I appreciate the people who really like the podcast at times. I really enjoy doing it. As I've already stated, I think it's the best broadcasting that I've ever done in my career, largely because there's no commercials to have to worry about. And having an hour to be able to get in-depth on things is an incredibly uh, you know, a great resource and not something you never have in commercial talk radio. So there's positives to that, and that's why I still want to continue doing it to the extent that we're able to. But on a weekly basis, it's just not worth it. It just, it just isn't, and it hasn't been for a long time, and I've given, I never give up. I never give up until it's absolutely, positively, 100% certain that there's no other option, and so that's basically where we are right now. All right, so with that said, I solicited your questions, and I got a lot of really good ones, so I want to answer as many of them as I possibly can in this uh, last, I guess, hour of this version of the podcast. And uh, the first question I'm going to answer deals with, Advice on being married to a Trumpster. And I have some insight on this because I'm married to a half Trumpster. Uh, my wife is from a family of full-on Trumpsters. <laughs> and um, she is probably more of a Trumpster than she wants to lead on to me. So I, I understand that. I, I know her, obviously, exceedingly well. But she's not insane about it. I mean, she will fully acknowledge on a, on a sometimes daily basis when I say, did you hear what Trump did today? And she'll go, oh, God, oh, no, what happened now? So she – and I can deal with that. I mean, it's the same kind of thing that happened with Leah Brandon. When Leah had the virus under control, I was fine with it. But it's when the, the virus overtakes the host body and, and you lose all rationality, then I, I can't take it anymore. So I don't know the person, uh, whether the person who asked me this is in a situation where it's a half Trumpster or a full Trumpster, full zombie or partial zombie. Uh, full zombie, I, I don't have any hope. I, I'm sorry. I, I can't give you um, any false hope here. If you're married to a false zombie, um, I mean a full zombie, then I don't, I don't know how you can possibly be married. I really don't. I, I, don't, think it's, I don't think it's compatible. I, in the long run, I just do not see how that can possibly work. My advice, there only would be two pieces of advice under that set of circumstances. You either never, ever, ever, ever talk about politics, which is certainly doable, I guess, or the second, if that's not possible, then you have no other choice, but you must go for the gusto and try to, um, to get, you know, somehow to get her to change. And and that's going to be an incredibly arduous and painful process that's probably not worth it. But if you think that it's possible for her to change her mind, then, you know, that would be the the very risky Hail Mary scenario. 
which I'm, I'm not suggesting you do. My, my first gut would be to say if she's a full-on zombie, you're just going to have to deal with it and live your life. If it's more like my situation, then, you know, I, I, I think that the, the jab and move is probably the best scenario. You, you talk about it briefly and then you move on. You talk about it briefly and you move on. Um, and under the scenario where your wife is not a full zombie, you can usually get away with that because their rational side is dealing with their emotional side. And the rational side can, you know, take over the controls for a few seconds. And then before the emotional side takes over, you, you get out of there. You get in, you get out. You get in, you get out. So that would be my, my, um, I don't know if it's any good, but that would be my advice on how to be, deal with being married to a Trumpster. And then uh, another question was about the future of conservative media, obviously within the context of what's happened because of Trump. And this is a great question. And another one that I, I don't necessarily have a, a perfect answer for, uh, because there's, there's really two options here. Uh, either we are no longer in Kansas and we're never going back and we're, we're going to live in Oz forever. Or theoretically, you could somehow go back to the way things were before Trump. I don't see that happening. Uh, for that to happen, Trump would have to be removed from office for, and for him to be so completely repudiated that en masse it became untenable for the conservative media to continue to pretend uh, that he was a legitimate president or that it was legitimate to support him for president. I guess I should say he was elected as a legitimate president, but, but uh, you know, that, that, that he should never, ne- never should have been president. So, but I don't see that happening. I, I, I just don't see how, for instance, Robert Mueller is going to come up with enough ammunition to convince the Republican Party and the, and the cult base that, Trump needs to be removed, and I don't see him ever resigning for the good of the country. <laughs> that's that's never going to happen. Um, you know, could he decide not to run for re-election and claim victory? I made America great again and move on. Yeah, that's possible. But so really, the conservative media's future is going to be dictated all about how Trump ends. Is it in ignominy? Is it in ambiguity? Or is it somehow in triumph? Does he get reelected and somehow live out eight years and is America better than it was? So that's really going to that's going to tell the tale. Those are the three basic options. It ends in ignominy, ambiguity, or in some strange world, somehow he survives for eight years and everything's a rousing success. My, my gut tells me we're going to end this in ambiguity. That there's never going to be a moment when everyone goes, aha, we were wrong. <laughs> and no one's ever going to admit they were wrong. No one ever, especially in the media, the media never wants to admit they're wrong. And if the audience isn't forcing you to admit you're wrong, in today's day and age, you're never going to do it. So my guess is that the conservative media has now changed forever. And that it's all going to be based totally on ratings, not on any sense of what conservatism is. I've said for a very long time the conservative media is a business disguised as a cause. That's what it is. And now that that's been shown to be clear as day, and that those who sold out have been rewarded, guess what's going to happen? 
when those who sell out get rewarded and those who don't sell out get punished, guess what's going to happen more of in the future? You're going to have more people selling out (laughs) because that's what gets rewarded and fewer people holding out because that's what gets punished. So it's all going to be based upon ratings, and a large part of that is going to be based upon how this Trump thing ends. Next question. Why do you have a backbone and common sense when other conservatives in the media don't? Now, this sounds like a self-serving question, but there's actually an important answer here because it really has very little to do with me as a human being. Part of it, obviously, is. But there's a real actual reason that's important because what is it that makes John Ziegler unique? I've already stated it with regard to the nature of this podcast. I don't get paid. All right? I don't do this for money. I don't care about being famous, and I don't care about being attacked. That's what makes me unique. There's nobody else. Seriously. There's nobody else in conservative media who has my level of knowledge and experience and broadcasting acumen, who does it for free, has no commercial concerns at all, and doesn't care about how people think of him, doesn't care about his popularity, doesn't care about being famous or remaining famous. I don't care. All I care about is the truth. That's not shtick. That's reality. And nobody has a better track record, for better or for worse, anywhere in the media, especially the conservative media, on this than me. So and why is that the case? I'll be very honest with you. It has to do with two basic, well, it's basically the same thing, but it's two different things within the same topic. It's my family background. My mother was a truth-at-all-cost person, right? So, and she had a, the, by far the greatest influence on me. She didn't care about popularity. She was all about the truth, telling it like it is. So, and then I was absolutely my mother's son, 100%. However, I also have a father who has done exceedingly well for himself in this world, financially. So, thankfully, I can live a life, not a great life, but a decent life, based upon the fact that I've saved a lot of money over the years and invested my money very wisely and safely, I'm in a position where I don't necessarily need to make any more money. I can survive. There's nobody else (laughs) with that set of circumstances other than me. And in this day and age, as I talked about in hour number one with the movie The Post, there is an inverse relationship between quality of journalism and profitability. I happen to believe now... The, the only place where you can really get the truth is from a non-commercial entity. But non-commercial entities have no credibility, perceived or in reality, most cases. So that's one of the many, many, many problems with journalism and why the truth is in such peril in this day and age. But that's why I have a, a backbone in common sense with other conservatives don't. They all have financial and or popularity concerns that I don't. Next question is somewhat related to this. What's the real story of what happened with you at KFI Radio in Los Angeles? I don't know if this person is aware, but I actually once had a website that actually was titled 
the real KFI. <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore. I got rid of it because it was more trouble than it was worth. But it was pretty extraordinary because <laughs> when I left KFI, I was pissed and I had no interest in ever doing talk radio again. So I was happy to inflame, you know, burn to the ground whatever bridges there were that were there, although I don't even think there are any bridges there to begin with. The bottom line story with KFI is this. KFI, when I worked there, was the most uh, listened-to talk radio station in the country. It no longer is, but that has mostly to do with the fact that they've changed the way the ratings are done, which has dramatically hurt uh, talk radio in general, but a station like KFI in particular. That's another story for another day. But KFI is a complete fraud. KFI is a, a, the classic example and, and really was the precursor the precursor to Trump conservative radio. You know, it's often said that California sets the, the tone and the trend. KFI was the precursor of Trump media. And what I mean by that is this, that the opinions and perspectives were dictated by what the audience wanted, what was going to get ratings, and there was a racial tinge to it. KFI realized very early on that if you complained about illegal immigration on a daily basis in Southern California, you could get a certain rating that was good enough to make money. And then when the news was good, you, f you forgot about illegal immigration and you talked about Scott Peterson or OJ or, or, you know, whatever else was in the news, uh, Michael Jackson, whatever celebrity tabloid story might be out there. So, you know, that was that, that was the, the, the playbook, the playbook at KFI is, Illegal immigration, illegal immigration, illegal immigration, unless there's a story in the news that reaches a threshold that's going to be better than illegal immigration. And this playbook worked well, but it required people to make shit up. <laughs> Specifically, the morning show there with Bill Handel and the afternoon show with John and Ken. John and Ken were the people that I was most uh, interacting with because my show followed theirs. And John and Ken were total frauds. I mean, they, they their opinions are based totally on what they thought was going to be good for ratings that day, much like what Fox News Channel has become. And I'm sure it's even worse now. I don't listen to them recently, but I'm sure now it's even worse because, you know, it used to be you had no real idea what topics you were doing in talk radio that worked and didn't because you only got ratings every three months. And there was no possible way to determine for sure 100% which topic hit and which didn't. You might have an idea, but you didn't know for sure. Now the ratings have changed to where you have a much better idea. So I'm sure it's even worse now. But the, what really came to a head at KFI was the Iraq War. Because John and Ken had been gung-ho on the Iraq War. I mean, they literally had led rallies on behalf of the Iraq War. They, they did live national coverage when Saddam Hussein got captured. They they were the national radio voices of that. I mean, they were, you know, pom-poms out the whole bit. Well, then when the Iraq War becomes unpopular, they flipped 100%. And it was a perfect storm situation where the John's co-host, Ken, uh, was off for a whole week, right around 9-11 of 2006. And this meant that John actually had to work. <laughs> and John was super cranky because of it, because he's tired and he doesn't have Ken there to bounce things off of. And he's not very good without Ken. 
John alone is not that good. John and Ken together are tremendously entertaining. But John was tired. And so 2006, 9-11, and uh, Ken, John is just trashing President Bush's statement uh, because he had made a statement on 9-11, and he's trashing him over the war, and uh, and I'm just outraged. And, in fact, it was so bad, Leah Brandon came in the office because she was listening on the way in, and she immediately comes to my office and says, don't say anything. Because she knows me. She knows I'm listening, and she knows I'm fuming. Well, that was actually good advice on her part, but it was kind of stupid because by her saying that to me, it probably instigated me even more. It triggered me even more. And so, long story short, we go in to do my promo for my show, which is about to start at 7 o'clock. And it's a commercial break, and it's just me and John in the studio. And I say to John, you know, um, John, do you really believe what you're saying about the Iraq war, or is that just for ratings? And he's like, ah, what are you talking about? He barks at me, and I don't even know what the hell he said, frankly. And then he, he gets quiet for a second. And then he says, no, actually, I believe it. You know why? Because trying to control Muslims is like trying to control black people. It'll never happen. That's a direct quote. That's a direct quote. Now, my jaw is like on the fucking floor. I'm like, what the fuck did he just say? That's like the most racist thing I've ever heard in my life. So now we go right on the air from that. And I'm like, how do I handle this? So John says, what's coming up next on the show? And I go, and then I say, I'm going to explain how it is that John Cobelt could have his head so far up his ass on a rock. I think I even said a, a smart guy like John Cobalt could have his head so far up his ass on a rock. And John Cobalt goes bananas. Now, it's important to point out, me saying him having his head up his ass was not very far out of the realm of normal conversation on the radio show, right? I mean, th- th- that's kind of what the station was about, everyone jabbing each other. and you know. But it was too close to home. It was too for real. It was, John didn't take it as a joke. John took it as serious because of what we had just talked about off the air. So John go- goes bananas. I mean, he, he was, it was crazy. He was immediately... These go to 11. He was at 11. He's screaming at me. He's cutting, cutting my mic off the whole bit. So I'm like, oh, that didn't go well. <laughs> you know, that, that basically. Boy, that escalated quickly. Yeah, it, that was it was horrendous. And I'm immediately knowing, OK, this is going to end very badly. <laughs> and I go on the air. And frankly, I was very proud, very proud of how I handled it on the air. I took the high road. I explained my position on the Iraq war. I explained why I thought Chot was wrong. I explained that why I thought that years from now he and I would have a drink together and be thankful that. We had actually done this thing in Iraq. This was back in 2006, so I didn't realize we were going to completely abandon everything and Obama would be president and all that. So I had no anticipation of any of that happening. So I ended up being wrong. But the point is, I took the high road. But all the while, John is immediately, while I'm on the air, sabotaging me with with, uh, the management. Because, you know, he's the big swinging dick. He's the one bringing in all the money. I'm just the evening host. So what's right and wrong doesn't matter. At all <laughs> in the media. It may not matter anywhere, but it certainly doesn't matter in media. 
he was totally wrong, but the fact that he was totally wrong, I think actually further instigated his destruction of me. Anyway, long story short, I ended up getting suspended, which was insane, completely. It was just flat out ridiculous. And at that point, I'm like, all right, I have no interest in working here anymore. But I'm not going to quit. But they try everything they can to, to make me quit. And boy, did they try everything. I mean, they did everything they possibly could to get me qu- to quit, including they sent me. A, I was living in Burbank, like half mile from the studio. They sent me to another studio across town where I had to drive through traffic to do the show in a freaking closet, literally a closet. I'm having major guests like Ann Coulter come into a, co- a closet to do a radio show. I mean, it was just pathetic. It made me a better broadcaster because I knew if I could broadcast under those circumstances, I could broadcast under any circumstances. So it made me a better broadcaster, but it made me hate the the job. It made me hate them. And eventually I survived. I'm sure they had no idea I was going to survive as long as I did. But eventually my contract came up and we both agreed uh, you know, to part ways, and they paid off the end of the contract, and that was it. So that's the real story of what happened at uh, KFI. Uh, and I have never once, never once, even as much as I'm getting paid there, never for one second have I ever regretted not doing talk radio in general on a commercial basis or working at KFI. Not one. Not one moment. Next question, if I could change one career moment, what would it be? Oh, my God. Jeez. That's uh, that's a tough one because I've made so many damn mistakes. I mean, I, I am the kind of person that makes a ton of mistakes, but I'm good at correcting them. Like in golf, there's nobody who's better at hitting provisional balls than I am. Like in provisional balls, you hit the first ball, might be in trouble, you tee it up again. Second ball is always perfect. <laughs> I'm really good at learning from my mistakes. Uh, and so it's really hard to look back on my career. But if I had to say there were <sighs> – there are probably two moments that I regret the most now. And unfortunately, like everything in life, it's based upon what did you know at the time as opposed to what you know now. If I knew now what I, you know, if I knew then what I know now, my first two appearances on the Today Show are clearly the moments, even though I, I'm proud of the way I handled the situation under the circumstances. I really wish I had done that differently. The first one dealt with my movie, Media Malpractice, how Obama got elected in my interview with Sarah Palin. My plan there was to completely create a scene with Matt Lauer. I was going to go in there and just start throwing bombs. Andrew Breitbart and I had discussed the whole plan. It was going to go up on the Drudge Report. Well, everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. Uh I, and I don't, I'm not want to waste too much time, but again, it's kind of this life without leverage thing. I had no leverage. They tried to change. They they booked me not realizing, I guess, that the Academy Awards were the night before, which is just insane. So they tried to change that. I had to force them to keep the date, uh, which lessened our leverage. And uh, and then we found out that the DVD that Matt Lauer had been given, because it was we were we were. We produced this movie in a ridiculously short amount of time. I mean, it's a freaking miracle. This movie was produced at a high level in the incredibly short amount of time that it was. We put the movie, you know, we did the the, the Today Show at the end of February of 2009 uh, when I did the Sarah Palin interview at the beginning of January. So it was like barely over a month we get this movie out. Well, the DVD he was given did not work properly. 
Now, whether I overthought this or not, I don't know. But I decided at the very last second I could not go in throwing haymakers against Matt Lauer because then he would raise the issue of, hey, your DVD didn't even freaking work, and then I'm toast. So I felt like I had to play nice. So it, it, And then it also turned out that Matt Drudge and Andrew Breitbart were, at least according to Andrew, I don't know if this was an excuse or reality, were in some sort of a dick measuring contest at the time, and that limited Andrew's ability to help out the public, you know, the publicity surrounding the uh, the premiere of the movie on the Today Show. So it, it turned out to be a freaking disaster. Had I gone in there all guns a blazing at that time period, because you got to remember. Early 2009, conservatives are like in the fetal position. Remember? Obama's just been uh, elected with a huge majority. He's got massive approval ratings. No conservatives are fighting back at all. None. Had I used that moment to, you know, come in all guns ablaze and carrying the flag, uh, you know, and, and created a must see viral moment, I think things might have been very different. I think that might have been a, a sea change moment with regard to my career, but I couldn't do it even though that was the plan because of circumstances I just told you about. The second one would have been my second appearance on the Today Show uh, where I had just done an interview with Jerry Sandusky and I uh, did another interview with Matt Lauer and I was I don't do well with conflict. I'm very good with a green light. I'm, ver- I'm pretty good with a red light. A yellow light... I'm not good with. And there were yellow lights everywhere on this one because my gut was telling me this is all bullshit. Sandusky's innocent. I, but I don't have enough time to prove that. I mean, I got a very limited time between, you know, the time that the interview gets done and the time that, that the Today Show wants me on. And I realize it's really probably my only option. And that was very similarly a disaster. In fact, I had uh, dinner before I left for New York with uh, Cyrus Narasta and his wife, Betsy, the filmmaker who made The Path to 9-11, who I've talked about many times before. And I told them, I said, I should not be going and doing this interview. I said, this is going to be a disaster. I should cancel right now. Uh, But I couldn't do that because, again, with no leverage, it would have been seen as negative towards me instead of negative towards the Today Show. In a rational world, it would have been like, wait a minute, why is this would have increased interest? Because why is Ziegler canceling the interview? And instead, the media would have said, oh, he's a fraud. He's hiding something. You know, even the Today, the Today Show decided to cancel. It wasn't Ziggler. I, mean, I have no way of fighting back. So I knew I was going into a lion's den unarmed. Uh, and I also knew that I couldn't say what I really believed about the case because I hadn't proven it at that point. So if I had known then what I know now, I would have just blown the whole freaking thing up. I would have just said, go fuck yourselves. This is all bullshit. Sandusky's innocent. Paterno's innocent. This is all big fraud. And these accusers are a bunch of, you know, are, are all liars. Now, you know, that would have caused quite a scene. <laughs> that would have been quite a scene. But, uh, and I don't know what the ramifications would have been. I know it would have, I would have been attacked and destroyed. But I think it might have changed the whole dynamic of this case. I think the, the 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 whole trajectory of this case might have changed. It might not have been good for me, especially in the short run, but I would have liked to. In retrospect, I wish I would have done that, but I I couldn't based upon the circumstances at the time. Uh, someone else asked, 
Speaking of this, why are you so invested in the Joe Paterno story when you literally have nothing to gain? Great question. <laughs> because it's actually even worse than the question implies. Because um, not only I, I have nothing to gain. I mean, there is no scenario where I gain anything. And I've known this for a very long time. I even... I, I, I don't even think there's any scenario where this gets fixed. That's what's so insane from my perspective. It's not going to get fixed. And even if by some miracle it gets fixed, I'm already totally convinced that I don't, I not only won't get credit, I'm convinced I'll get blamed. And I'm being totally serious here. I'm convinced that if a miracle happens and this gets fixed, that the easiest way for the news media to explain why they fucked this up is to blame John Ziegler. If only the person saying this to us had been a credible person who we respected and who had done so in a, in a proper, gentlemanly fashion, we would have believed it. But it's that asshole Ziegler's fault. It was because he was the one telling us that we disregarded it. That's my prediction, if this ever happens. So there's no scenario where my life gets made whole. None. And trust me, my life has been destroyed by this in every possible way. I'll give you one example that I'm sure you never thought about. For the rest of my life, because of Google, unless and until this somehow gets fixed, which I don't think it ever will, any time a prospective friend of my daughter's disappears, it will be blamed on, whether right or not, it will be blamed on my involvement in the Penn State Sandusky case. Because my wife will always just presume, and maybe even my daughters will eventually presume, that someone Googled me and got freaked out by, oh my God, he's a Jerry Sandusky supporter? We can't be dealing with those people. And that's just one of many, many aspects of this whole horrendous ordeal that's been the last six years so it's never going to be fixed i'm never going to get credit and then here's the other kicker i hate everybody in the story there's not even anybody i like anymore i i I have the least amount of disdain for jerry sandusky ironically enough mostly because i've had the least amount of contact with him you know they say that familiarity breeds contempt well after six years of being familiar with everyone in the story at a certain time and it changes. It changes with the flow of events. I have hated the fucking guts out of everybody in this goddamn story. Not just a little bit. I'm talking. I'm not even talking about the bad guys. I'm even talking about the people on the supposed good side. In fact, I hate the people on the good side, supposedly. You know, those directly involved. Not all, but most. More than I hate the bad side. The bad people are just stupid or greedy. The good people are fucking cowards and or morons who aren't believing me like they should. So there's not even anyone in this story I'm rooting for. In fact, it's one of the ways I've been able to psychologically deal with it, the fact that this is never going to be fixed. Because in part, I'm thinking, you know what, in, a we- in the weirdest way ever, maybe justice really was done here. Not to everybody, not to the, not to Jerry who's going to die in prison for no reason and the administrators who got sentenced to prison for no reason. But, but by and large, a lot of people got punished here because of their own cowardice and stupidity. Not because they were having anything to do with child molestation. 
So I don't have an answer for you. Why do I do it? I do it um, because no one else will and because the truth needs to matter. Do I really believe the truth matters? No. But I can't live with myself unless I do everything I possibly can. And that's probably because of my mother. That's the best answer I can give to you. Uh, someone else asked similarly, have you seen the movie The Big Short with Christian Bale? Because when I watched it, this person says, I kept thinking of you and the Penn State case. Meaning, you're right too soon. <laughs> uh, the Big Short is the movie about the economic collapse of 2008, real estate bubble, what have you. Interestingly, uh, when I was watching the movie, <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> oh, God, this is my story. Except I'm not going to end up rich like Christian Bale's character did. <laughs> so, yes, I saw the movie. And, yes, that if anyone wants to understand my plight, watch it. Because that's exactly the same deal here. You know something is the truth. It's obviously the truth. But everyone is invested in an alternative narrative and a myth. And, uh, and eventually you think it'll break. But I'm not sure in this case it ever will. Uh, two other questions, or a couple other questions on this whole Penn State thing. If you had two minutes to the to the world to explain why Sandusky is innocent, what would you say? Uh, well, you can't do it in two minutes because the burden of proof is way too high. But here's, if if you just trust everything that I'm saying is true, here's the proof. Jerry Sandusky is allegedly a pedophile for his whole life, forty five some years with. 37 people who have now been paid lots of money from Penn State, right? Yet, after all this investigation, all of this media coverage, all this money, the following is the reality. Not a shred of pornography has ever been found anywhere near Jerry Sandusky. Not a shred. No DNA, no surveillance phone calls, no text messages, no letters, which he wrote numerous letters, having anything to do with having anything to do with sexual abuse. No contemporaneous reports, no stories that are the same at the end of their telling as they were the first time they were told. Not one incident at, at trial of him plying accusers with drugs, no plying accusers with alcohol or pornography, which is standard in a case like this. Not one case of someone getting a settlement from Jerry Sandusky to keep their mouth shut. Not a non-disclosure agreement. No one even ever asking for money. These were All these men were poor. Not one of them ever, unlike Dennis Hastert, which is the most similar situation you could possibly contrive, not one person ever asked Jerry Sandusky, hey, pay me, or I'm going to tell my story. Not one. In short, this case should have O.J. Simpson-like evidence, and it has nothing. Not to mention, Jerry isn't even gay. <laughs> that's, the, that's the part no one wants to talk about. He's not gay, and I don't think he could get an erection during the key time periods. The medical records make that clear. And not one of his accusers are remotely gay. Which is also critical because people don't understand these guys were all in their teens, almost all of them when this happened. They're all post-puberty. The Catholic Church case was almost all gay priests going after kids they perceived as gay. 
None of that's in this case. None of it. You'll never find another case even close with, by the way, no confession. They always confess after they get convicted. No confession when he has no chance of ever seeing the light of day again. He has every reason to confess. Nothing. And I was guaranteed I could get him to confess by Jim Clemente. I did exactly what I was told. Former FBI uh, profiler who's being sued over his bullshit JonBenet Ramsey special on CBS. He's a complete fraud. I did exactly what he said. He guaranteed me a confession. I got basically nothing. So um, another person asked, when will the gun you referred to with regard to this case be fired? Uh, You know, with regard to this national magazine article that you've been working on with other people. I don't know. It's driving me crazy. Uh, Be clear. I have always said I don't know that the gun ever will be fired. And I also don't know if the gun gets fired, whether it'll do any good. In fact, I think there's a better chance it backfires than than it actually does any real good, which is why I'm very conflicted about the whole thing. The last couple of months have been exceedingly frustrating. I thought the gun would have been fired by now, which is why I extended the contract for this podcast studio till today, because I thought we'd be talking about that. That's why I extended it to mid-January, because I thought for sure by the beginning of January this thing would be done. It has not been done, and I don't know when it's going to be done. It's not going to be tomorrow, but it could be very short. I can shortly. I can assure you, people are working on this very hard, and the media outlet is 100% on board. Um, but I am as frustrated as anybody else is, and I'm still very, very skeptical as to what the final result will be. I'm quite sure I will not be thrilled with it, but you know, you got to do what you got to do, and this is the only option as I see it. Um, Final two questions on this topic. As you can see, a lot of Penn State guys. People are fascinated by this. It's amazing. They should be. It's the most amazing story ever told. What will it take for Jay Paterno, which is Joe Paterno's son, to admit the truth of this case? I've said many times that Jay Paterno actually knows Jerry Sandusky is innocent. But he won't say it because he's afraid of what it will do to his career and his reputation and the family dynamics because it's the family position that Jerry is guilty as hell because of Jay's brother, Scott, who's a complete frickin' moron, whose fault this whole story is. Uh, Jay is very slowly coming closer to that. I talked to somebody who had a conversation with him just recently where they had the overwhelming impression that I was 100% right about Jay. Jay knows Jerry is innocent, and Jay's important because Jay is one of the very few people, very few people intimately involved in this, who obviously knew his dad very well, Coach with Mike McQuarrie, the only witness in the case, and coach with Jerry Sandusky. So he is right there in the middle. And Jay was one of the first people who gave me reason to go, wait a minute. I spent three and a half hours in his family room one night in 2012. And at the time, I thought Jay was delusional. I thought, he's just not accepting reality. Then I realized, holy shit, Jay has this whole thing nailed. But... I doubt he'll say it anything, anything public because that's just the nature of this story. Uh, what do you expect from the Paternal movie on HBO? I expect it to be horrendous. Uh, here's all you need to know. Sarah Ganim, the fraudulent Pulitzer Prize winning reporter, is the consultant, which is effectively like having Sean Hannity be a consultant on a movie about Donald Trump's presidency. It's going to be a complete embarrassment. All right. Uh, also, someone asked me, did you see the movie I, Tanya about Tanya Harding? I did. And I have some pretty strong opinions about what's going on with Tanya Harding. Uh, I was appalled by uh, an ABC special that they did in conjunction with this movie, I, Tanya. Tanya Harding, of course, the skater who 
was involved with the Nancy Kerrigan controversy back in 1994. And um, long story short, I think that the revisionist history that's going on here with Tanya Harding and the scrubbing of, of her disgrace is almost, not quite, it's almost like if O.J. Simpson suddenly was being remodeled. Um, because, and, I, and I'm, you know, I know I'm a contrarian by heart, a lot of people are softening towards Tanya Harding now, 22 years later, 23 years later, whatever the hell it is. And, you know, the media is with this movie and the ABC primetime special are trying to tell the other side of Tanya Harding. And she was abused by her mother and abused by her husband, both of which, by the way, deny it strongly that's ever happened. I actually think less of Tanya Harding now than I did when the scandal happened. When the scandal happened, I thought, oh, well, she was involved, but. She's dumb. She's white trash. Uh, I, I actually felt a little bit of sympathy for her. Uh, I, I even remember thinking it was, you know, I was glad that she was getting to skate in the Olympics, which in retrospect was ridiculous. Should never have happened. and only did because it, the ratings were going to be off the chart. There was no way the Olympics were going <laughs> to abort that. Um, but I, I think that, that Tanya Harding is a pathological liar. I think she's lying about her mother. I think she's lying about her husband, I, the, neither of which are good people. Uh, and, and her mother's batshit crazy, but I think she realizes, I think that she understands that the rules have changed. That it's interesting that 23 years later, 24 years later, now if you are a victim of some sort of child abuse, it explains everything. You get a free pass on everything now. And so she understands that that's her ticket. So she's putting it all on her mother and all on her husband. And I don't believe her. I don't believe her. And it's important as far as her involvement in the actual attack on Kerrigan. You know, in the ABC special, she acknowledges that she knew something was up before it happened, which apparently she's never done before, which was really stupid on her part to do. But more importantly than that, the piece of evidence that the media rarely tells you about is that there is her handwriting on an envelope with the name, the address, and the telephone number of Nancy Kerrigan's training site. And there's evidence that that was the first location where they were going to try to hit her before they realized she wasn't there. (laughs) They were so stupid, they didn't realize she wasn't even there. And what's really, which I didn't even know until I saw the ABC special, it's even worse than just having her that written in her handwriting on an envelope. You know where the envelope was found? In the trash, but not in her trash, in the trash of a local restaurant. So that means that's consciousness of guilt right there. They took that trash and they put it into a place they never thought, understandably so, anyone would ever connect it to them. It was a complete fluke that someone found this in the trash of a restaurant. That's consciousness of guilt. That's prior knowledge. And the people involved with her also, including her former husband, say that she knew. So I don't buy anything she says. And I think it's it's, ridic- it's it's particularly ridiculous given this Me Too movement where Hollywood is all like, you know, against abuse of women. And here they are making a her- heroine out of a woman who facilitated a, an assault on Nancy Kerrigan. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Seriously. 
it's just... It's just flat out ridiculous. All right. Um, another person asked, why can't Republicans do better with minorities? Please don't blame the media. Well, to me, now that we have Trump, I mean, I don't know how you ever go back on that now. I mean, when you got Trump saying the things things that he does, you know, pre-Trump, I do think it was mostly the media's fault. I think that the media was invested in a narrative of Republicans as being racist. And liberals were obviously obviously very much invested in the same narrative. And liberals run the news media. Post-Trump, I think it's all about Trump. I don't know how you possibly, for, the, for two generations, how you possibly make inroads with minorities as a Republican Party when Donald Trump is your brand. Donald Trump is the Republican brand. That's one of the many, many long-term cancerous aspects of the Trump presidency. Because with the demographic changes in this country, you cannot win in the long run that way. That's why Marco Rubio would have been far better in the short run and the long run, in my view, for the Republican Party if he had been the nominee. Uh, How do we fix the divided dialogue? I think this deals with this issue that I talk a lot about, about fragmented news media. Boy, I wish I had an answer for this. I am glad that more and more people are articulating it. Barack Obama, as much as I disagree with him politically, he seems to understand this problem better than anybody. Check out his interview with David Letterman that got released this week on Netflix. He talked in great detail about the bubbles that we were all in and where we're getting our information and the different worlds in which we live. This is something I predicted in my book in 2005, the book The Death of Free Speech. That was in the subtitle, actually. Uh, it was Prussian. That book was incredibly Prussian, and no one bothered to read it. I understand. It was, probably wasn't that great. I, mean, I, think it was, I think it had some interesting things to say, but it's, I've been vindicated time and time again with what's in that book. But the biggest vindication is I predicted this fragmented media creating a divided United States of America and all of us living in our own information bubbles. And the only, um, the only way I can see this ever getting fixed is if there's an economic catastrophe in the news media and all these outlets go away. But I don't know that that's going to happen. It could, but I doubt it. Uh, what was my dream job as a kid? I wanted to be a, a television sportscaster which I did for a couple of years and got bored with it. <laughs> I also realized as a white male who looked very, very, very young that there was no real chance of me becoming a star. And so doing it on a local level, uh, I just didn't think it was that, that interesting long term. So uh, I don't think I would have succeeded as a, as a broadcast uh, play-by-play guy, which is really what I wanted to do. But I did enough of it so that I could say I did it and got that out of my bloodstream. Uh, Many people mourn what Breitbart.com did to Andrew Breitbart's legacy. Is that deserved? Absolutely. Uh, Andrew and I were very, very close for a while. Then we had a massive falling out uh, because of a number of issues, mostly related to the fact that I did not think that uh, Andrew, ironically enough, I, I did not think that Andrew... Uh, was the real deal. I thought that he was not putting his money where his mouth was. I thought that he was not being willing to take a big enough risk, specifically with his own relationship with Matt Drudge, uh, to tell the truth and to facilitate you know, what I thought were important issues and important truths. And he also, I also think that Andrew <laughs> ended up sabotaging me personally because he thought of me as a threat, which is insane, but I think that that's what was going on with Andrew. 
But I always thought that we would have a rapprochement. I never anticipated that Andrew would die suddenly. Uh, so it, ne- it never occurred to me that that would be the end of our relationship. I always presumed we would have a reconciliation. But what Breitbart.com and Steve Bannon has done, and by the way, I correctly predicted that Steve Bannon would be fired, did I not? Last week on the podcast, I predicted it. I predicted it prior to that in a column for Mediate. I knew he was done. And what uh, Steve Bannon has done to uh, Breitbart.com and Andrew Breitbart is an absolute disgrace. Whether it's permanent or not, uh, it probably is, because Breitbart will always be associated with Trump. And Andrew Breitbart would never, ever, ever have gotten on the Trump train during the nominating process. And he would have remained Trump skeptical as much as economic conditions would have allowed him to do so. Uh, but Steve Bannon totally bastardized that. And I, I you know, it's, it's maybe one of the best things about the Trump administration is that Trump, through his lack of loyalty, <laughs> has perhaps ended the career of Steve Bannon. Good job, Trump. I, I, I'm, ha- I'm happy for you on that one. That one, you know, if a lot of, for a lot of people, Trump is but Gorsuch. For me, it's but Gorsuch and Bannon. <laughs> Thank God for Donald Trump on Gorsuch, although he wanted out of that, and for uh, potentially destroying Steve Bannon. Uh, what's the future of Tiger Woods? You know, boy, that's a great question. Uh, I don't know. I have been very outspoken as the world's former number one fan of Tiger Woods and the former pastor of the First Church of Tiger Woods, that he's done. Uh, In 2014, I wrote a cover story for the weekly magazine in Louisville, Kentucky, where I used to live and work, where they were having the PGA Championship that year, where we were literally burying Tiger Woods in a grave. Uh, That that was my whole premise of the article. It's over for Tiger Woods. I think that the record has shown I was right. Much like my prediction with Steve Bannon, my prediction with Tiger Woods was dead on. I was the first person to really say it is over, and it has been over since then. But there are some signs that he might not be totally done. And I'm very, very, very skeptical of you know the fact that golf desperately needs him and that everyone is invested in this narrative that he could make a comeback both the players and the media are totally invested. So when people are invested in something happening that they desperately want to have happen, I'm inherently very skeptical. I will also admit I'm human, and boy, would I love to see it. As much as I've hated Tiger and post-scandal and crapped all over him as much as I could because when you screw me over, as my daughter says, you know, when she points to the, the picture in my office wall, I have two large pictures autographed by Tiger Woods. She says, Daddy, that's the guy who broke your heart. Well, he was the guy that broke my heart. He broke my heart. He shattered it. But, boy, I would love to see him come back. And there's some indications it's possible. I'm still not buying. I need more information. Rory McIlroy just made some comments the other day about having played a practice round with Tiger a couple months ago with his dad and uh, being incredibly impressed by what he was seeing from Tiger Woods. I just can't believe you can come back from that kind of back surgery and that kind of mental scar tissue and play with the younger guys in a changing game. I just don't believe it. I think he can be competitive. I just do not believe he'll ever win again. But I will also say there's always been a piece of me, part hoping, part intellectually believing, that much like Jack Nicholas, there's going to be a final chapter. The story is too good for there not to be a final chapter. Because right now, the story just ended. 
without closure. And that's really what I think is part of the fascination with Tiger Woods. He left us all like, wait, that's it? What? Huh? What? We need a, we need closure. We need a final chapter. Will there be a 1986 Masters for Tiger Woods? It's possible. And boy, would I love to see it. Uh, is Trump a good guy or a bad guy? Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? Uh, I, I messed it up, but it's a bad guy or a good guy. Um, I believe that Trump is a bad person. I think he's a bad human being. I think that's clear. I think the last opportunity for him to be a good person was for the presidency to change him. That clearly did not happen. He did not change. That was a lie. He's a bad person. Now, does that mean everything he does for the country is bad? No. Uh, but uh, I think as a human being, he's a bad person. Will he get reelected? I think there's still I, – I, I'm probably on the, the bullish side of his reelection. I don't think Oprah would beat him. I think she's too vulnerable to his attacks, and she doesn't take advantage of his weaknesses. I don't know who the Democrats have who would beat him. I'm more than willing to believe he he will lose. I mean, his his approval ratings are terrible. But who's going to beat him? I don't know who that is. Now that you're married with kids, has your opinion of marriage changed? I um, <laughs> I was adamantly opposed to marriage my whole life, philosophically. I believe that the marriage contract should be renewable at five year increments. Uh, and I have to tell you that while um, I'm not doing that, my opinion of marriage has not changed. In fact. <laughs> Having been married uh, you know, for almost a decade now, not quite, and having two kids, marriage is even more difficult than I thought. Marriage is the most difficult thing I've ever done. I've done some really tough things. So my opinion has not changed, but you know, I'm glad that I did it mainly because I don't think you can – I would not want to have kids outside of marriage. And you know, having kids is pretty awesome, even though they're going to both hate me. They're both going to resent me. They're both going to think nothing of me. They're gonna, both going to think I'm a big loser. Uh, you know, especially the, the younger one, Diana, is never going to have any memory of me being anything but a complete, total, unemployed loser. So uh, the future is not going to look bright there. But at least, you know, there will be some good moments there. And it is pretty cool being a dad. And I, I think I'm a pretty good dad. Uh, and so my opinion of marriage has not changed. But I'm at this point, I'm glad that I did it. Uh, last two questions. <laughs> Have you thought about running for office? Absolutely not. Dumbest thing idea ever. I'm the easiest person to torpedo in the history of the world. And no interest whatsoever, nor any ability to make that happen. And finally, uh, you know, in your interview with Glenn Beck, it sounded like he wanted you to work for the Blaze. Would you ever do that? Uh, yeah, I guess I, I would think about it, but I don't see any chance of that happening largely because the blaze is not in a good enough place for that to occur. And, frankly, I'm too controversial even for the blaze. I mean, even for Glenn Beck. I mean, I think Glenn, it's pretty clear that, that Glenn likes me. I mean, that that seems pretty obvious, right? Uh, John Ziegler, I, I think he's fantastic. What a, what a interesting mind he has. But uh, I think he only likes me in small doses. <laughs> Ziggler's one of those guys to Glenn. Boy, it's fun to talk to him from time to time. But if but if we get too much of Ziggler, this this might be a little bit uh, more risky than it's worth. So I don't see that happening. I see it much more likely where I'm just going to uh, fade away and you'll likely won't hear very much from me. Uh, but we will continue to do these podcasts. I urge you to subscribe to the podcast so that uh, you'll know when we're putting out a new one. 
Uh, make sure you pay attention to me on Twitter and Facebook and uh, our website, freespeechbroadcasting.com, so you can keep updated on when we're going to be doing these sporadic new uh, podcasts. Uh, and, of course, I'll keep doing the uh, columns for Mediate as well. So uh, there'll be plenty of ways to find out what's going on in my world uh, and so please uh, do make sure that you uh, keep updated on all of that. For those that have supported this podcast, again, we're not going away. It's just going to change. Uh, we don't know how much it's going to change, but it will change at least somewhat. Uh, but we will still be uh, doing these again, hopefully on a, uh, at least two or three a month uh, type of basis. So thanks so much for all your support. Thanks for everyone who's been making this possible. Uh, and uh, let's keep uh, keep in touch. As always, I ask only two things of you. Make sure that you share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.